The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. I'm Noah Tolley, Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and International Relations, Chair of Urban Studies and Executive Director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College. And I'm one of the collaborators on the Liberating Arts. I'm here today with Dr. Christian Heckley, Director of the Gady Institute for Liberal Arts at Westmont College. Welcome, Dr. Heckley. Thanks very much, Noah. It's great to be here with you. Great to have you with us. So let's start today with your, your definition of liberal arts and a quick overview of your work at the Gady Institute. I know we're not going to spend the whole time on definition, and we could. Right? We, we could spend <laughs> months on it. But um, in order to understand where you're coming from and for the audience to, to know you know, what kinds of answers you're giving later and put them in context. How would you define liberal arts? And what do you do at the Gady Institute? Great, yeah, so uh, you're starting with the worst question. <laughs> uh, and a part of the problem with defining liberal arts is that it's got a very long history, well over 2000 year old history, and it's been used differently that whole time. I mean, um, I like to think of liberal arts education in terms of its purpose. I think the best way to define it is in terms of what it's for. That's the best way I think to discriminate different kinds of education. So I'm inclined to distinguish uh, liberal arts education from maybe vocational education, for instance, or pre-professional education. Um, I see three streams historically in liberal arts education, one we might call the liberating stream. That's probably the most recent, uh, hearkening back, I suppose, to the Enlightenment. One we might call the scholarly stream. So uh, the idea there, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle and maybe even further back to Plato and Socrates. Um, the scholarly stream, I think, understands the value of education in terms of its intrinsic value rather than its instrumental value, its non-practical education. That has a long history in the use of the concept liberal arts. And then uh, what we might think of as the humanistic stream in liberal arts education, and this is about development of virtue and uh, the kinds of skills that um, that social leaders are going to need, that community leaders are going to need. Um, I think all three of these streams are crucial in the history of liberal arts education. Sometimes they're in competition with one another. And I think at any liberal arts college or any place that's purporting to offer a liberal arts education, you can see all three of these things that work simultaneously and people not, might not even be aware of the fact that um, they are working with different understandings of liberal arts. Um, yeah, so, you know, obviously sometimes people define it in terms of the kind of institution we're talking about, small, residential, I kind of hope not. I hope a liberal arts education is possible at a community college. I hope it's possible at a major research university. I think it is. 
Um, I'm not answering your question. <laughs> That's okay. You, like you said, it's the toughest question right up front. I, I, I would say that the way I think about uh, liberal arts education is um, tremendously valuable for one's professional preparation because it's emphasizing foundational and broadly transferable skills, which turn out to be hugely important in one's profession. Um, the way we do it in the United States, it's also hooking that to specialization that might advance one in a particular area. Uh, and though that combination, I think, is great professional preparation. But the crucial thing, I think, about liberal arts education is that it's also addressing non-vocational dimensions of our lives. Um, it's, it's addressing our civic lives. For people of faith, it's addressing our spiritual lives. It's addressing our uh, social engagement, our relationship to our communities. Um, every person is more than their job. We are whole people. And I think, I think we ought to pursue an education that addresses all dimensions of our lives, our professional lives, certainly, but beyond that as well. Uh, so I suppose if I had a core idea, it would be an education that addresses all dimensions of our lives. Hmm. Can you tell us before we jump into how that education that addresses all dimensions of our lives and has these three purposes, before we jump in further about how that can be relevant to our current moment and to whom we must make it relevant, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at the Gady Institute? Yeah. Yeah. So the original, uh, the, the Gady Institute was conceived as a way to get a perspective of Christian liberal arts education into the wider conversation about the liberal arts and the American Academy as a whole. Um, so we host a conference every, a small conference, national in scope though, every year, um, that brings people from all kinds of colleges and universities who are dedicated to liberal arts education. And the original conceit was, uh, you know, let's offer these folks from other uh, walks of life a little vision into what Christian liberal arts can be. Well, okay, we've done that. But unsurprisingly, we've learned more than we've benefited. Mm. Uh, I mean, than we've offered benefit. Um, you know, when we've, we've gotten into, we've become conversation partners with people from a very wide spectrum of schools with very different perspectives. And, you know, you know how it is. The best way to learn is to widen your community of conversation partners. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the original idea. It turns out that's been more to our benefit than the other way around. Uh, we fairly quickly pivoted to, we still do that, but we started to include programs for um, prospective students in particular, and in particular, prospective students from underrepresented communities, because they're just not getting the message about liberal arts education. It looks completely irrelevant to their lives, given the way they are talked about, talked to about higher education. Um, and we thought, what a resource they're missing out on. Uh, let's see if we can get the story to um, students from underrepresented backgrounds in, in high school so that maybe they'd want to come to little colleges like Westmont and Wheaton. Um, that's been a real joy. And, it, and so our focus since uh, probably five years in, I suppose, has been as much on students and prospective students as anyone. Okay, great. I want to return to that later sure. in the session. And dig a little bit more about what's next for the Gady Institute or what you've learned about um, the audiences for yeah. liberal arts yeah. discussions and learning. But you and I have both said, uh, to each other at least, over the past couple of weeks as we've uh, 
uh, prepared for this conversation, that we need to be able to talk about liberal arts learning, uh, or rather the values, practices, and purposes of liberal arts learning without always naming liberal arts education or liberal education. Why would that be helpful and important? Well, I suppose one reason is what, what I just demonstrated with my first response. Nobody knows what liberal arts means. And mm -hmm. I direct something called an Institute for Liberal Arts. And even I can't give you a one sentence definition. That's gonna frustrate people, obviously. Uh, so fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, there's also just built right into the term, two words that are problematic. One is liberal, that scares people away. And one is art, that scares people mm -hmm. away. And of course, in the phrase liberal arts, uh, liberal doesn't mean liberal in the political sense of the word, and arts don't mean the fine arts, as we might often think. Um, but the very first connotations might be, for some at least, problematic. For others, they'd be attractive, but mistaken. Um, and then insofar as people do have some feel for the term, it's usually pretty vague. I think it typically means for people simply broad education its connotations are often not too good. Um, it might connote elite and maybe elitist. And some people might just think like automatically, that's not for me. It might connote non-practical. And I suppose by that, I mean uh, not job oriented. And people might say, why in the world would I go to college and not get a job out of it? Um, so it has some tricky connotations. Um, and I suppose, you know, one, one approach that I take in one, one little resource that I created is to try to develop an account of the kind of education that a young person might want, and then sort of do the big reveal. Oh, it turns out that's a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I don't really want to run away from the term. I think it's probably still a good idea to keep the term. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is problematic, and I am inclined to sort of roll it out after the fact rather than lead with it, for whatever that's worth. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, I think that's a good point. You can put the term in the back. You don't have to leave it out entirely, yeah. but you can lead people along in a conversation about what education ought to be or what its purposes might be, and then in the end, like you say, the big reveal could be that's what we call liberal arts education. It turns out you want to go to Westmont. Or right, <laughs> right, exactly. So the, the title of this project is Between Pandemic and Protest, Exploring the Future of Liberal Arts in Higher Education. Clearly, this is a nod to the pressures of our current moment, which are various when it comes to both the pandemic and when it comes to racial injustice and unrest. Um, with the pandemic, you know, we have the financial challenges uh, of higher education. We have a public health issue, obviously, and we have the racialized dimensions of that, the injustice attached to that. And then obviously we've struggled with a parallel crisis of racial injustice and civil unrest. Obviously there's a pain point here or a point of vulnerability for some liberal arts enthusiasts. This could especially be for the liberal arts enthusiasts that fall in that, that scholarly purpose vein that point to learning for learning's sake and may stay in that territory rather than branching out from there. And others may ask them, are the liberal arts really valuable 
when it comes to addressing the pandemic, addressing racial injustice, addressing polarization and division. Um, others have asked me that, so I assume you may even be getting the same questions. How yeah. would you respond? Yeah, well, uh, the first thing I'd say is um, let's not totally lose sight of what, what I've called that scholarly uh, tradition, the idea of the intrinsic worth of learning. Uh, I'll, I'm going to return to that in just a minute mm -hmm. in the context of uh, a context of racial injustice. Um, but let's start with pandemic, shall we? <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, I'm tempted to answer that with just two words and names, actually, and they are Anthony Fauci. Um, Anthony Fauci is a very highly trained um, epidemiologist, I, I guess is his field. Um, an outstanding expert specialist. His undergraduate degree was from a small Catholic liberal arts college, College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts, in, are you ready for this? The classics. Hmm. That's his undergraduate mm -hmm. training. And I actually think we are seeing, I mean, I can't draw a line there. It would be tricky to draw a line, but I do wonder if we're not seeing the fruits of that kind of combination in his education, mm -hmm. a grounding in a liberal arts education in his undergraduate degree, uh, coupled with very advanced specialization in public health, um, I, I think maybe we're seeing the fruits of that kind of education in his work. Look, he's got to be a highly trained specialist to do what he's doing, but so much of what he's doing right now requires skills beyond the specialized skills that his narrow profession needs, he's got to be able to negotiate, he's got to be able to communicate, he's got to be able to navigate complex situations and solve, you know, what they call wicked problems, or mm -hmm. solve is the wrong word, address wicked problems. Um, all of these, I want to call them foundational and transferable intellectual skills, I would submit that his undergraduate education developed those skills to a very high level. And that's a part of what makes him the successful professional and leader that he is. So, you know, one quick answer with respect to pandemic is, can we have more Anthony Fauci's please? Mm -hmm. And the way we get those is to have people with a really powerful grounding in a liberal arts education, coupled with a really careful, highly trained specialization. I think that's a fantastic combination. Um, that's not the only thing to say about how liberal arts is relevant to pandemic. I mean, if there was ever a, a problem in need of a multidisciplinary solution, it's this one. And uh, liberal arts education trains students to think interdisciplinarily. Um, we definitely need to be doing that here. Um, as I said before, it's a great example of a wicked problem. There's no algorithmic solution. There's no optimal solution. There are competing values. There's lots of uncertainty and risk. All of that, a liberal arts education ought to be equipping us to address. Um, and then finally, you know, in, in terms of pandemics still, uh, we need resources to sustain ourselves. Um, people have been in lockdown for, what is it now, six or eight months. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the face of that, and some of those folks are facing real hardship, either sickness or unemployment and uh, the financial consequences that go with that. People need, uh, what's the right word? They need uh, intellectual, emotional resources to deal with that. And 
I think uh, a good education can provide us with those resources. A friend of mine uh, I ran into the other day, he was an English major, and he's been through the ringer the last couple of years. And he said, you know, there's going to come a time when you discover that you need poetry. Hmm. And it helps if you know how to read it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, poetry sounds like a silly response to pandemic, but I don't think it is. And I think it's really good to know how to read it. So, um, man, I sure hope that uh, liberal arts education can help us in a time of pandemic. Can it help us in a time of racial injustice and the unrest surrounding that? Um, I want to say yes, but I'll be candid and say I'm not sure. Uh, The yes part is that obviously um, a liberal arts education ought to train us in uh, seeing issues from others' perspectives. That ought to be central to a good liberal arts education. It can contribute to our ability to do that. Um, And uh, the challenges of racial injustice in America certainly require that. So, you know, I want to say a a hesitant yes there. The trouble is that um, our racially unjust society is going to require for some relinquishing power. And can education deliver on that? I think for a lot of people, the point of going to college is to maintain one's position and strengthen one's position. Well, okay, that can be valuable, um, but some of us are gonna have to relinquish some power, are gonna have to relinquish some status and some uh, of our position in society. Where do you get an education that trains you, that invites you, teaches you to uh, relinquish power. Man, I don't know. I mean, here maybe is one place where there's hope for Christian liberal arts education. I mean, there, if anywhere, uh, we ought to be inviting students to relinquish power. (laughs) But I'm not sure that happens very often. I think students at my college are as likely as anywhere else to be climbing the status and wealth and power ladder Now, okay, you know, they're supposed to be good people as they do that, Um, but being a good person who's amassing more power is still not relinquishing power. So I'm uncertain. I'm a little uncertain. Now, having said that, some people in our society uh, need the opportunity to be empowered, and a liberal arts education can be empowering. (laughs) I mean, a part of what you were saying before was that this so-called scholarly stream that emphasizes the intrinsic worth of learning, I mean, that's just empowering. Reading a good essay, reading a good novel can be empowering. Um, And I want that for our whole population. Uh, And some people are in a position where they really need empowerment. So, Liberal arts education, I think, for some members of our population can really provide that empowerment. For others, we need to learn how to relinquish power. And whether we can do that, that for me, the jury's out on that question. That's a great way to put it, Chris. I, it reminds me of two things. One will be a question for you that, that will, I think, advance the conversation even further here. But another one is something I recently told one of my students. I think a lot of times we engage in higher education, we engage in liberal arts education in particular, 
as a way to enhance, you say strengthen our position, we enhance our power this way. I think a lot of us um, need to relinquish our power and learn to do that. And I recently mentioned to one of my students that for some of us, liberal arts education ought to end up um, giving us something like Jacob's limp, right? Mm -hmm. Where we, we think we actually engage in liberal arts education in order to walk a right for the rest of our lives or to be empowered or something like that. But for some of us, there should be parts of it that stick with us mm. in even sometimes a difficult or painful way mm. where it teaches us to walk with a, a limp or a reliance on God or even giving up or relinquishing of power. As soon as I said that, though, I needed to correct myself because I had overstated it. And so many others need to be empowered by what we do. And so we need to keep those things in balance. And, and yeah. I appreciated your answer in that way. One yeah. of the things I heard in your answer was something about what don't we want for our students? I, I heard, you know, teach some of our students to relinquish power. In that, we might hear that we don't want education to be about teaching all of our students simply to amass power or to amass wealth. Um, we talk a lot more about things we do want for our students. What else would be on your list of things we don't want for our students in liberal arts education? Yeah, well, this is tricky and it's tricky exactly along the lines that you were just, that you were just saying. Uh, different students need different things and different students don't need different things. Um, one of the things I've been really anxious about for the last five or six years, uh, just watching the stress levels in students spike um, and wondering about the sources of those anxiety levels. One of the things I've been worried about is, um, uh, just let's just call it achievement anxiety. I think the students that I encounter are riddled with achievement anxiety. Um, and I don't even, I don't know if they know what it is they want to achieve. They just know they're supposed to. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm tempted to say in response to your question, uh, what do I not want for my students? Straight A's. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the right answer because I love it when my students get straight A's. Uh, maybe I need to revise and say, I don't want them to want straight A's. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, but even that's not quite right, because I, I don't mind them being uh, ambitious for learning. What I don't want is for them to want straight A's for the sake of the straight A's, because somehow those A's are connected to their sense of self-worth, or because those A's have been commodified, and they can trade them in for a scholarship, or they can trade them in for graduate school admission or they can trade them in for a job. If those A's are following great learning, I want them to get straight A's. Mm -hmm. And I want them to want to get straight A's. But I'm afraid we've got the tail wagging the dog here. And the credential is now the thing that is actually being sought rather than the, the substance that the credential is saying, yes, this person has that. Mm -hmm. uh, we've stopped seeking the substance and, and I'm afraid are just seeking 
the appearance of the substance. Um, and along with that, for a lot of my students, is coming real anxiety about whether they're good enough, whether they're making the grade. Um, and I think it's just crippling to them. So, um, you know, I want to say, what do I not want for my students? A lousy definition of success. Mm -hmm. I want them to rethink what success means, a holistic vision of a successful life. You know, for some, you know, they are working to get themselves out of really economically vulnerable situations. And I want those people to have a good job because that's a part of a good life. And I don't want them to just have a good job. I want them to have meaningful work because that's a part of a good life. So yes to good work. Um, but gosh, I, I worry that there is this terrible threat that I'm going to fall off the ladder of success if I don't keep getting A's and that somebody's going to be disappointed in me and I'm going to be disappointed in myself if I don't. And I just think that's crippling to learning. Yeah, that's a great um, point. I think on the one hand, we don't want students to be pusillanimous stewards of their gifts, the talents that they bring to our classrooms. Um, if the A in the end reflects their investment in things, their stewarding of their gifts, and even their, their stewarding of their gifts for God and others rather than for themselves, that's great. If the A is valued in and of itself, that's a problem. Um, that's a bad definition. It's, it's not a matter of pusillanimity necessarily, um, although it could be seen that way because valuing something that doesn't, that shouldn't be valued at that level is, is problematic. Um, Can I just, I, I wanna, go ahead. sorry, I, I just wanna add something. I don't put it at the feet of the students to value the A for its own. Yeah. They've been living in a world where the A has been completely commodified. Mm -hmm. Their GPA has been completely commodified. So it's, it's not on the students that they're thinking this way. It's on an entire system that colleges themselves are contributing to in the admissions process, in our, in our striving to be in the top 100, you know, liberal arts colleges on the USA, US News and World Report list. Um, you know, we got to have a high profile and high profile means our incoming students have a GPA of this or above. We are trading on the very thing that I think is crippling our students, the commodification of their grades. Sorry, that was an interruption, I apologize. No, no, that's no problem at all. That's a great point. And I wonder, I'll follow up on that point actually with another question. How is it that an institution that uh, measures its performance in the kinds of ways you're talking about, US News and World Report rankings, um, much of our assessment regime, not necessarily all of it. Um, what parents and students think they want when they come in, reflecting that back to them uh, successfully enough to enroll uh, the class that we want. How do we, as institutions that are like that, then teach students what rightly to desire when it comes to grades and academic performance? I, I, I almost don't know what to say here, Noah, because about the only thing I can say, I'm ashamed of it, 
is that we're engaged in a little bit of bait and switch, aren't we? Mm. Um, we get students to Westmont on what grounds? When they get here, we work really hard to share with them a vision of a rich Christian liberal arts education. We don't hide that as we're recruiting them. Uh, we're very clear about that as we're recruiting them. But, you know, I'm not sure that's the primary thing they're after when they, you know, when they choose us. And understandably, our marketing has to appeal to what they do want, you know, to the felt want that we then set about potentially, I want to say, enriching, transforming when they get here. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a tricky business. Um, I really want to get in the game at, at the high school point. I want to get in the game at the point that students are in high school and we're doing some things that are that are like that. And I don't I I haven't figured this out at all. I want to get in the game with their parents when they're in high school. Right. Um that it seems to me is really crucial so that we don't have to say, "Hey, look how beautiful our I mean, it's fine to do this, but you know, look how beautiful our campus is and look at this great community that we have." And oh yeah, you can get a job with this education. And then we get them here and we say, okay, here's the things we really want you to value. And maybe they aren't those things. I mean, not that those things are bad, but um, uh, I, I would love it if we could cultivate high school students who really want what we have rather than getting them here on the grounds that, yeah, we've got enough of what you think you want. And then, oh, and look at all this other stuff too that's really good that you didn't think of. <laughs> I'd like to get to them at high school, in high school. Right. So that gets to another one of my questions. Um, you keep segueing in advance, which is great. Um, so you're, you're anticipating where I'm going with this. Who's the right audience for a better, um, more robust understanding of what liberal arts education is, what our institutions do, what it can mean in the lives of our students and alumni. Is it prospective students? You were just talking about high school students. You're talking about wanting to connect with prospective parents. Um, current students are a sort of captive audience, at least. We can do programming for them and uh, they'll show up somebody will give them extra credit for being there or give <laughs> tie it into their class session. Uh, is it administrators? Is it board members? Or is it potential employers who we want to be confident in hiring our best graduates? Okay, you've got a big list and let's not forget uh, policymakers. Right. Um, you know, a lot of colleges, uh, my college, your college or private colleges, a lot of them are obviously publicly funded and um, and state legislatures are deciding their priorities. So let's not forget them. I don't know how to get to them, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, the, the dumb answer is all of the above. Um, I have become especially, I don't know what the right word is, passionate, I suppose, about getting to students before they come to college so that they can begin to craft a vision of what college, all that college can mean for them. Um, I hope that, that my college can deliver that. Um, 
it's an open question whether we actually succeed. It's one thing to have it in all the documents, it's another thing to actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't dismiss the importance of employers, as you've mentioned. Um, I think, I hope we are graduating highly employable students. I mean, we need to make sure we are doing that. Um, but man, we've got to get the word out to employers mm -hmm. um, that these students are employable. And that's a tall order. I'm not sure I'm, I'm tuned into how to do that. And you mentioned uh, administrators, obviously, they're the ones who are uh, deciding where budgets go, what gets funded and what doesn't. I'm inclined to think that administrators are not really in the seat of power, hmm. <laughs> that administrators are following uh, other forces. Uh, those forces are coming from the board. So the board is really important. Mm -hmm. But the board, as powerful as they are, are also not completely independent agents. They too are following other forces. Um, and what are those forces? I, I think in the end, those forces are enrollment, at least for, you know, for my college. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I'm inclined to go back to prospective students. Mm -hmm. Do they want what we have? Mm -hmm. If they don't, we will change to become what they want. I mean, that's where the forces are going to take us. Um, and if, if we convince them to want what we have, will we deliver it? That's a critical question for us. Will they be employable? And will they have the rich, multi-dimensional, holistic education that, uh, you know, that we promised them? That, <laughs> that's a tall order too. You don't get it just by taking a history class and then taking an English class and then taking a physics class and then taking your business classes. Um, just sitting in those classes that are required of you isn't necessarily getting that done. Um, yeah, so you can hear where my inclinations lie. I think we've got to convince the next generation of students that this is what we want. A part of how we have to convince them that this is what they want is to uh, convince them that they'll be employable. And a part of how we do that is to get to employers and say, these people are good for yeah. your uh, organization. Yeah, I often say that a liberal arts education, the education we're delivering should teach students to uh, make a living, make a difference, and make meaning or find significance in their world and their work, uh, both as individuals and as communities. Let, and me I, just, let me just run those by you again, because they're nice. Make a living, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, make a difference. Yes and make meaning. Yeah, make meaning or find significance. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, thank you. I've, you know, it's been part of my effort just to package for students and parents of, um, who are interested in the programs that we offer uh, through my Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College, uh, what, what it is that we think through when we're, when we're programming for them, right? We think through how to get them to the point where they're making a living. We think through the, how to get them to the point where they're making a difference we think through how to get to the point where they're making meaning or finding significance. I happen to think that liberal arts education does all those things well, and in many cases does them all better than other options that our students have. But we, we, we tend to think pretty narrowly and communicate pretty narrowly around making meaning and finding significance a lot of times. And we, we get a little better at communicating about 
making a difference sometimes. And we get a little better still, but not much. Um, or rather, this is, this is in reverse order. We, we tend to think poorly about making a living. Let's just put it that way. Um, and what I wonder is how can we do that? Like, how do we actually communicate to students that in addition to making meaning, finding significance, we can teach them to make a difference and make a living? Well, I'll, I'll start with the third one because I do think that's the hardest one for uh, a, an institution committed to liberal arts education. It's been so often offered as, um, let's just call it a vocational, non-vocational, non-professional, and and for good reason. Uh, its majors, some of its, you know, some of the majors that would sort of be the standout majors are in the humanities. Uh, the humanities are typically not lined up with a professional uh, field. Um, there is such a thing as a historian, <laughs> but they're, they're all academics. Mm -hmm. um, you have to stay in the academy to be a professional historian. You don't have to stay in the academy to be an engineer as a professional. There are majors that line up with professions and there are majors that don't. Um, and the majors that don't are often thought to be those majors that like are the ones that fit in under the heading liberal arts, mm -hmm. um, the humanities, the natural sciences, the social sciences. Um, and so it's, it's not surprising that liberal arts is often seen as um, not directly relevant to one's uh, future work. I think that's a mistake. Um, and the case that I, I, I alluded to this before with respect to Anthony Fauci, the case that I try to make is, look, you are going to need a first job. And for that first job, you're going to need some uh, specialized skills because there's going to be an ad that says, we want a person that knows how to do this. And you better mm -hmm. know how to do that to answer that ad. So yes, you're going to need some specialized skills. Um, but boy, it, once you're in that position, what is going to allow you, what is going to make you promotable? The things that are going to make you promotable are going to be in part your specialized skills, hmm. but they're also going to be your foundational skills, basic intellectual skills like synthesis, analysis, communication, um, seeing hidden assumptions, being able to work out implications, problem solving, teamwork, all of that stuff in your professional context is what's going to get you promoted into ultimately a position of leadership. Um, that's the stuff that's happening. Yes, it's happening in your major, but it's also ideally, hopefully happening in all of those crazy general education courses that you were just trying to get out of the way, <laughs> right? That's where you can develop those things. And that's, what's going to make you a really outstanding professional. Take those foundational skills that of course, everybody can do and develop those, hone those to an especially high level. And you'll have something that the others in your firm don't have. Mm. So that's one case to make. Now, you can't ignore the specialized skills that get you in there in the first place. You can't ignore that or whatever that path is going to be, internships, good uh, part-time work while you're in college. Um, those things are going to matter, but so are those foundational skills developed to an especially high level. The other thing that I try to convince students of is 
you want to be able to move around. People are changing jobs like mad. People are wholesale changing careers. What are the skills that allow you to move around? Those are going to be transferable skills. And I think those are the same foundational skills. If you hone those skills to an especially high level, you're going to have the capacity to move around. Mm -hmm. um, so I think liberal arts education is absolutely relevant to work. But it's tricky. We've got to get people thinking about their step from college to work, or maybe graduate school to work, right from the start. Uh, because some of these majors are not obviously aligned with the profession and they're going to need, I don't know, they're going to need some real conscious effort to launch well out of their perhaps non-professional major. Sure. Boy, if they can do it, then they're going to be incredibly well equipped. Right. That's a good point. And our institutions can come alongside. Yeah. Um, academic departments come alongside fields of study and help with that. Um, speaking of how our institutions do this. Lots of institutions have, have produced good work making statements about what is liberal arts learning, um, what we want for our students. At Wheaton, we just produced something like this called a vision for Wheaton College graduates. We hope, after all the work that went into that document, we hope it's not just another web page. We hope it doesn't it just doesn't get filed away effectively, but uh, in the web version of just filing things away now, where you can always find it, but you never really consult it. What does it look like, or what does it have to look like for an institution to make these commitments part of its DNA rather than just filed away or just another web page? Uh, you know, we've, we've got this document at Westmont called What Do We Want for Our Graduates? It was written 25 years ago. Three faculty members collaborated on it. That was a part of its genius, by the way. It had a very small set of authors. Um, and it is a beautiful thing. Now, it's got some problems. Um, it completely ignores uh, the make a living part and to some degree even ignores the make a difference part. And it's so much about, you know, making a meaningful life. Um, it's beautiful and it's a revelation to students when they encounter it, um, but it does have some flaws. Nevertheless, you know, 25 years ago it was written and that document, darn it all, has worked itself into the DNA of the college. How? I'm not really sure. Um, it has been trotted out in new faculty like orientation workshops. Mm -hmm. We have those, you know, we have like a year long thing for new faculty. And that document gets rolled out there. So uh, it starts to get into their DNA there. A lot of us use it with our uh, uh, general education courses. Um, we hit incoming students with it right out of the gate so that their vision for what a Westmont education is all about um, might be a little bit transformed by that document. Um, so, you know, just getting that, you know, like the document you're working on, just getting it, using it in class, using mm -hmm. it in uh, orientation workshops for faculty and students, new staff members, new administrators. Um, but on the, that, that's just about like a document. On the larger question of how do you get a liberal arts vision worked into the DNA of an institution? I think the critical thing, I mean, this is gonna be obvious, you gotta have buy-in from other than the usual suspects. 
the usual suspects. At the center of the usual suspects for like advocating for the liberal arts is gonna be the humanities. Obviously the liberal arts right. ranges beyond the humanities, but the, the people in the humanities are gonna be all over that because otherwise they may not have, they may not think they have a reason for existing, they do, mm -hmm. but that might be their best, their best argument. Um, the social scientists and the natural scientists have to buy in, but even more than that, uh, those in the professional disciplines, you mm -hmm. gotta get you though they have to be convinced that it matters that their students are taking a history class, mm -hmm. that it matters that their students are taking an anthropology class. It, it, you've got to get to the faculty outside of the traditional liberal arts disciplines. Um, and then, of course, you've got to get outside the academic division. You've got to get buy-in from student life. Mm -hmm. Holy cow, you've got to have buy-in from student life. They have to see that the integration of liberal arts education, in, in my context at least, um, with Christian faith is absolutely enriching to students' lives. Um, so that's a critical thing. Student life has to buy in. You've got to get buy-in from the admissions and marketing people. That's probably the canary in the coal mine. When the admissions folks stop talking about your liberal arts identity, 10 years from now, you won't be a liberal arts college anymore. That's probably really important. Mm -hmm. So keeping that vision uh, in front of the admissions folks and the marketing folks and offering them something that can be compelling to prospective students and their parents, man, that's, I think, huge. We talked about that already. Who's the audience? Um, but I think they're an important part of it. And then the, uh, the top administrators who aren't a part of the academic division. Um, it's so tricky because you can imagine a VP at, at, at an executive, you know, uh, uh, team meeting, the VPs meeting. You can imagine them, you know, if they're not the provost, always thinking, oh, well, I'm kind of second fiddle here. And you don't want that, right? You want that to be a team of equals, but there has to be a, a sense in which the non-academic top administrators recognize this is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of the institution. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of, I suppose, it's kind of orientation, education, training work to be done with those outside of the disciplines and the, and the parts of the college where a deep commitment to liberal arts education might be a natural. Yeah, and that takes a lot of institutional investment and commitment. When you're onboarding somebody that isn't even in the academic division, yeah. and you spend some of that time talking about what liberal arts is. Yeah, right, right. So to wrap up, uh, two, two questions. One, what are the most important questions and the biggest challenges facing liberal arts education right now? What would you say are the top, say, two or three that we need to pay attention to? And what are some of the resources that you think we should be consulting in this moment? Okay, on the first one, um, I, I won't, <laughs> my first answer to your first question there, what, what are the most pressing questions? My first answer won't be the most important answer, but it is important. It's one we've been touching on. I feel almost uh, a little bashful about the fact that this has been such a big part of our conversation. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I'll, I'll just say it again. Can we make the case that liberal arts graduates are employable? 
that that's like existentially important right now because if we don't make that case this could go away mm. um and of course to make that case they actually have to be employable um i think not only are we failing to make the case for liberal arts graduates employability i'm not sure we're paying a lot of attention we're doing better at westmont these days but I think historically we may not have paid a lot of attention to in fact ensuring that they're employable. And I think a part of the reason for that is that there's been this sense that, well, we're above all that. Liberal arts education mm. is more important than someone's job. Yes, but it better be important for that too. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I, I would say, can we make the case that liberal arts graduates are employable and actually equip them to be employed? And then the next crucial thing is, can we make the case that college is about more than employability? We've got to help students see that they are more than a job and that their education ought to address more of who they are than their work. Um, again, we've talked about this too, but can we recapture the importance of higher education for our spiritual lives? Any intellectualism, in America, and I have to say, in the Christian community, and I will say even more, in my Christian community, uh, is on the rise and is a threat. Mm. Um, and it's not, it's a threat, I want to say, primarily to the spiritual well-being of individuals in the Christian community and of the Christian community as a whole. It's any intellectualism is a threat to our spiritual well-being. Can we make the case that higher education can matter for our spiritual lives? Um, I think we've got to work hard to make that case. And if we do, I think it's going to be a liberal arts education that's relevant. And then finally, uh, you know, this is, I suppose, totally obvious. Can we recapture higher education's importance for our civic lives? Mm. I don't think there, it, it has ever been more obvious how important education is for our civic lives right now. Um, we need people thinking really well as they engage in our political and social milieu. Um, but we've got to make that case because people are not coming to college to be better citizens by and large, even though they, they can be as a result. Um, and I think a part of that is going to be recognizing the changing shape of our culture and adjusting. And boy, for a college like mine, that's going to mean, can we adapt to being, here we go, uh, I should say, to not being a white majority college? Hmm. Because the demographics in California are changing. And uh, if we're going to reflect the population of California, we are not going to be a white majority college. And that's going to affect our curriculum. That's going to affect our student life programming. That's going to affect what chapel looks like. Um, we've got to adapt to the actual students that we're serving. Um, and uh, man, that's going to take a lot of work on our, on our behalf. And then finally, I would say, can we make the case that learning is a basic human good in itself. Hmm. It's a hard case to make. This has often been what advocates for the liberal arts have wanted to say. Um, I don't want to lose sight of that. 
by any stretch of the imagination, my life has been enriched by enjoying a life of the mind. I want others' lives to be enriched in the same way. That's a real gift. Let's not lose sight of that. Um, let's keep that on the table and keep making that case. I think if we can do these things, if we can make the case for these things, and if we're actually accomplishing them, then we actually have some hope both for richer individual lives on the part of liberal arts uh, graduates, a richer, more robust civic community in America, and uh, the ongoing health and well-being of liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. Wow, I, there are so many possible avenues of exploration uh, from those that cluster of responses to what are the biggest challenges, what are the biggest questions, um, what are some resources that you'd point us to if we were to really dig in and begin to answer some of those challenges and questions and get traction on them? What resources would you consult? I'm terrible at this, to be honest with you. <laughs> I just can't read how-to books. <laughs> sure. I shouldn't reduce good resources to how-to books, but um, you know, the thing that you need to know for how to go forward I can never get through those things. Right. Um, but what inspires you? <laughs> well, okay, the most enriching resource to me, I, I've mentioned this before, is poetry. Mm -hmm. I'm not an English professor, I'm a philosophy professor. Mm -hmm. um, but man, do I find poetry sustaining and healing. And this is a part of why I love liberal arts education. These surprising things that you would never think matter for your life turn out to matter hugely. Mm. Um, okay, so is poetry a resource for us? I don't know. Sure. Um, that, that's not a very good answer. One thing I will say more might more directly answer your question, only a little bit more directly. I think we need to be listening to new and maybe uncomfortable voices. Hmm. I think this has always been a part of the liberal arts tradition. It's always been a good part of the liberal arts tradition. And now more than ever, we need to be doing it. We need to be listening to new and sometimes uncomfortable voices. We need to be building those into our curricula for students, but we ourselves, faculty and administrators, need to be doing that. If we just keep offering the same old, same old, we're in trouble and we're not going to be serving our students or our society. Um, so uh, again, that's a very vague answer. Um, the last thing I'd say, and this is connected to the last point I made, uh, we better be up to speed on the demographics of our society. Um, we better know the students that we're gonna be serving in 10 years or we're gonna be obsolete. And we've got to adapt to those changing demographics. And that's again, a part of listening to new and uncomfortable voices. We gotta serve different students than we've been serving or we're not gonna survive. And uh, that's actually a glorious opportunity. The students that are coming to us could be hugely enriched by uh, the educational values that we've been embracing and championing and delivering. Um, but we're gonna have to adapt a little bit to get it to them um, and to get them to us. So uh, I think we need to know the demographics of the communities that we're serving. And I do think they're changing and we better, we better be tuned into that. Those are three great answers, including poetry. It's almost like you were reading off uh, my bookcase. <laughs> I've, I've actually got uh, somewhere in the background there, Robert Bringhurst selected poems. I, 
read from often, but also a book of poetry by Eve Ewing mm. on um, inspired by the 1919 race riots in Chicago. Wow. So voices that say to us uncomfortable things about yeah. uh, moments in our history that maybe we have decided to bury and we need to understand better. Uh, and then uh, Nathan Graw's book on demographics and the demand for higher education. And all three of those things uh, have, in fact, inspired me when it comes to thinking about liberal arts. And so I it's see them just back there over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where did where did all of those go? Um, here's a uh, here's Bringhurst, and then uh, here's Eve Ewing's book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, it's called 1919 Poems. Nice. Um, and so it, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all to have somebody say poetry uh, as part of this answer, but it's also important to note that you uh, mentioned voices that bring to us, bring to our attention some uncomfortable realities. And then also the demographic changes that are underway and on the horizon and that liberal arts institutions need to grapple with. So thank need you. Need to embrace Chris. and celebrate actually. I would and say. celebrate, absolutely, absolutely celebrate and, and grapple with in the sense that we may not already be making our institutions the kind of diverse, inclusive, uh, and, and just places that they need to be. And so there's some grappling there, but absolutely celebrate. Yeah. So thank you for this past uh, 45 minutes or hour, whatever we did. I think we could go on for days. It's been a real joy, Noah. Been a joy. Thanks a lot.